you're listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today we get to hear from editor and copywriter Hannah Burznell. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah. Hello, thank you for having me. I am so excited to chat all things books and editing, especially today. It's very autumnal. It's very cozy mm. here. It's been like raining all day. So I'm trying to get my yes. work done quickly so I can sit down and read, <laughs> read a book. Um, but for those who maybe don't know who you are, could you give yourself a kind of quick little intro? Absolutely. And I'm sure that uh, if my mum is listening, she is the only person who knows who I am. Um, so my name is Hannah. I'm a freelance editor and writer. Um, I My background is that I worked in publishing uh, for 15 years um, as a nonfiction editor in one of the kind of major trade publishers in London. And I, with immaculate timing, uh, left my job in early 2020. So my last day at work was April, uh, <laughs> April 2020. So that was a great time to completely change my life. Yeah. Um, and since then, I have been uh, working freelance. So I primarily work either directly with writers. So kind of early on in the process, you know, before they've necessarily thought about what they're going to do with their books. Um, I work with some publishing clients um, and I also run uh, some sort of writing groups and workshops here in Sheffield where I live which has been fantastic um, and I also do some writing myself. Yeah just all books books books. So books 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 yeah. For a lot of us who get into the writing industry whether you know mm -hmm. you're an author, editor, publisher, whatever we tend to love books from a young age. Was mm -hmm. it the same for you? Uh, yes, I am that uh, cliched bookworm, you know, staying up late under the covers with a torch to read just one more page. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, books have been a part of my life since I was since I was very little. I come from a very bookish family. Like my parents are both big readers. We've always had a house filled with books. Um, and yeah, I've just I've just always loved reading and read very widely um, from a from a pretty young age. Um, and yeah, made it made it my career. Um, and as anyone who's ever made their passion their career, that doesn't always doesn't always translate in the way that you think it's going to. But mm -hmm. um, but by and large, it's been it's been a happy a happy choice. So did you always know that you wanted to get into like the publishing industry did you always when you were going through high school for example did mm. you say I want to be an editor how did that happen no no not at all it was a very um late in the day decision for me um I always wanted to have some sort of creative job I knew that um and I thought about being a journalist that was kind of my main um ambition when I was when I was at school um, and then I studied history at university, but I knew I didn't want to be a history teacher or a kind of academic. Um, so really, for me, the main my main ambition was to move to London and um, do something creative. Um, so that's what I did after university. And I temped for a while and um, 
enjoyed living in London and uh, I just used to apply for pretty much any job that I could sort of entry level job I could find mm. that was creative so I applied to work in galleries and museums and all sorts of different places and one day one of those jobs was at a publisher I can't remember who um, and I think it was for a receptionist job I don't think it was an, an editorial job um, but I didn't get the job but I remember walking away and thinking huh publishing and genuinely it hadn't really occurred to me mm. um, I don't know why I really don't know why and I remember talking to my parents and um, saying I think maybe publishing might be the thing um, and my dad saying like uh, yeah obviously <laughs> like <laughs> it seemed such an obvious fit and it had genuinely never occurred to me so um, from that point on I then sort of focused myself much more on on publishing. So how did you end up getting in, getting your foot in the door in the publishing industry yeah. from that kind of realization? Yeah, well, so I'm going to age myself here, but it was the sort of <laughs> mid to mid two thousands when I had this realization. Um, and at that point, publishing was and remained for many years um, very much a kind of closed door industry, mm. and it was very much about who you knew what school you'd been to very mm. white middle class um and upper middle class yeah <laughs> um, and really the way in was either because you knew somebody or because you had the financial resources to do lots and lots and lots of unpaid work experience mm. which was just common and that's common across I mean or was common across lots of creative industries um and I so I'd already been working for a year in London at that point temping and you know you know I wasn't earning a lot of money but I was earning enough to have a nice time mm-hmm. um, and I wasn't really keen on the idea of doing lots of unpaid work experience and not even with the guarantee that there'd be yeah there'd be a job at the end so I took a slightly different route and I was very fortunate in being able to do this and I ended up doing a master's in publishing which at the time was quite unusual there weren't that many of them around um and again very privileged that I was able to you know had the financial resources to do that um so that was a year-long course and um it was great because it taught me about the industry it gave me a bunch of friends in London that you know were all interested in the same thing as me um I did work experience as part of of that course and then obviously at the end of it I had a qualification I knew how to I knew what to say in an interview and you know I had some contacts and so my first job as an editorial assistant came quite swiftly on the on the heels of, of graduating. Um, but, it, you know, it's it's only something I became, you know, I, I will hold my hands up and say I was I was a beneficiary in many ways of the way the system worked at that time. And, mm. it, and, and that was not a I mean, it wasn't healthy for publishing and that it, it just channeled in the same sort of person over and uh, over and over again. Um, and it, you know, obviously shut a lot of people out. Um, and it's been it's been good to see over recent years that publishers now have much more. Well, for a start, all work, work experience is paid, which is, you know, such a no brainer. But we just accepted it back in the day that you've got your, you know, you've got your tube fare and nothing else. Um, so all work experience is now paid. Um, and, and lots of publishers now have kind of programs and initiatives that are designed to bring people from kind of underrepresented and marginalized backgrounds into the industry. And, you know, there is a long, long way to go, but it's it's better than it was, I think. I think also as well, when you when you have only the same 
type of person working in publishing you're also only going to get the same types of books that are being published you know so absolutely like I think we've been seeing a massive boom even in just like the last five years of the types of books that are getting Mm -hmm. on the shelves you know from people authors of color from Mm -hmm. queer authors from Mm -hmm. books that that focus on those types of characters which I think is fantastic you know it's just so much more colorful it's so much more there's so much more for people there um yeah well it's it's more reflective of the world that we live in and it's it's a change that's been a long time coming and as I said there's there's still an enormous amount of work to do and I really kind of um doff my hat to the people that are in there sort of in the trenches making change Mm. because it's not it's not easy and there is resistance to it um from from inside and out um so yeah it's 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 a good thing to see for sure and you know when you started off in the publishing industry what was your job like was it different to what you'd expected because I feel like the kind of stereotypical view of someone who's an editor is like oh you just get Mm -hmm. to read books all day like it's a great job so yeah what did you expect going in and what was it really like uh I think because I'd done the masters I had a relatively realistic view Mm. of what it was going to be like um although I do I mean this might just have been the course that I did but they very much focused on teaching you about the business of publishing so you know basically how to run a publishing company which obviously mm. you don't do in your first job yeah you know I, 15 years later was nowhere nowhere near to that um so they the course I did didn't really focus on like this is what you'll actually be doing on day one as an editorial assistant so that was a bit of a like oh god I don't actually know how to do any editorial tasks but mm. you know um so that that was where the shock came for me um but yeah I think publishing does have a very sort of romanticized um sort of uh, image um and people think of people think of editors reading all day the vision I always have is um the film The Holiday with Cameron Diaz and Kate Winslet where Jude uh, Jude Law is is supposed to be an editor uh and there's this picture of him in this kind of beautiful Cotswolds house lying on reclining on a bed reading a manuscript and I think you know Mm -hmm. that's that's what people think publishing is um or they think of like uh uh Hugh Grant in um Bridget Jones as well see I always think um, of Sandra Bullock and the proposal yeah also also that I mean I could do a whole thing on like the way that publishing is <laughs> portrayed in movies like uh, particularly Sandra Bullock like no woman in publishing that I know trots around in high heels and a pencil skirt yelling at people and carrying a designer handbag that's just not the vibe um but anyway, yeah, people, pe- I mean, the number of people over the years that were like, so do you just read all day? Yeah. Um, and no, you don't. Um, and, you know, obviously my job changed a lot over the years. I started out as an assistant and, and an assistant's job is, is an assistant's job across multiple industries. You know, you are, you are doing admin, you are doing the sort of, you know, the lowest grade tasks in order to learn and develop and what have you. Um, and, and really publishing now, it's a modern and creative industry. So if you were to walk into a publishing office, it looks like any other office, you know, it's, except there's more piles of paper around, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's meetings and it's emails and um, reading and editing is, is generally done um, in, in small fragments of time that you can kind of claw back from, mm. you know, back to back meetings. Um, and, you know, a lot of editors will do the majority of their reading in their free time. So 
free time being a kind of relative term. Uh, so, you know, on the commute, when, when they're at home at weekends, um, also editing is often done sort of out of hours. Um, because, uh, you know, one of the one of the misconceptions, I think, about being an editor, I mean, the type of editing work that I do now is I, I just work on the manuscript. Yeah, you know, that's, it's just me, me, a pile of paper or a Word document. Um, and that's it. But when you work within a publishing company, if you're a commissioning editor, you're, that's just one part of your job. Your job, you are the kind of strategic lead on the publishing of a book. So you mm. are, it's your job to find the book. It's your job to bid on the book. It's your job to negotiate the contract, to make sure all the financials work. Um, if you then are successful in acquiring the book, it's your job to come up with the strategy. Like, how are we going to publish this book? What's it going to Where's it going to sit in the market? What's the cover going to be like? What's the title going to be? Um, how do we want to play the marketing and publicity? What editorial work do I need to do to squeeze, mm -hmm. squeeze into all of this? Um, so, and, and it's your job also to support the author through that process. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously it's a very overwhelming process for particularly for a debut author. Um, so there's a lot of um, hand-holding and um, nurturing and problem-solving and putting out fires all over the place and um, so there's a hundred million other things that you do in addition to reading. Yeah so when you do you know a manuscript comes mm. your way and obviously editors and agents and everyone read I don't even want to know how many manuscripts you've had your hands on. Um, mm. Is there ever a moment like, do you, if you're reading a new manuscript, can you tell immediately, like, oh, this is going to be good? Or is it usually like, mm, this has some promise or I see something? Um, it varies, really. I think, you know, most most commissioning editors, no matter what genre they're working in. So I was a nonfiction editor, um, but this, you know, same applies across, across genres, um, across types of publishing you know, everyone has a remit. So that, you know, I was a commercial nonfiction editor. So that meant I was looking for a nonfiction and B nonfiction that would, you know, sell in the commercial space. So, you know, stuff that would sell in Tesco's as well as it would yeah. sell in Waterstones. Um, so that already gives you a framework that you're working within. Um, but then you might have been tasked with something, you know, more specific than that. You know, we want you to look for this. We want you to publish this kind of book. Um, and then you have your own personal taste, you know, the things that, that I was particularly interested in or particularly um, knew I would respond well to. Um, so when those things come into your inbox from an agent, you're, you're like, oh, that's what I've been looking for. And so you're always going to look at, at something like that slightly differently to something that's maybe falls slightly outside of that, of those parameters. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's something that you've been looking for, then you might be, you know, the, you might, it's not that you would overlook problems with it, but that you, you're, you're coming at it with a kind of, okay, there's potential here. And even mm. though this bit isn't quite right, I know I can, you know, I know that there's something here that I can work with. Um, whereas if it's sort of falling outside of those parameters a little bit, then it really does need to be something that where everything else really lines up and you're like, this is mm. just so special that even though it's not what I was looking for, I still really, you know, still really want to go for it. So even within those parameters, you know, if you had, um, obviously you're kind of like the second 
port mm. of call because authors mm. will submit to agents and then agents will submit, mm. you know, to author mm. uh, editors who work for a publisher. Mm. Are there ever still kind of like mistakes in a manuscript that you would be like, oh, I'm not even going to work with this or you looking at it going okay I'm gonna forgive this and I'm gonna I'm gonna work through it or what are some of the really common manuscript mistakes that you would see um again it really varies and obviously yeah as you say by the time something comes to a commissioning editor it has already been through an agent nine times out of ten has already been through an agent's hand so you're getting stuff that's quite in theory quite well developed and quite polished often it's already had a round of editorial work on Mm. it um so it's rare, although not entirely um, uncommon, to that you will find, you know, things that have got like really obvious sort of, you know, spelling and grammar mistakes and stuff mm. like that. You know, you, by the by the time it gets to you, often that has been been dealt with. Um, but I would say the thing that really you see more often, perhaps, than you would anticipate, is books that don't have a clear premise or a clear hook Mm. um they might be really well written they might be about a really interesting subject but they're lacking that sort of um the substance and the and the the hook that's going to make me say yes this is why I want to read this this is why this Mm. is an important book to be published um and it's it's interesting how often that gets lost um Mm -hmm. either because it wasn't clear enough at the beginning when the author set out to write it or somehow they lost track of it along the way and it became confused or they changed their mind about what it was going to be um, and if that's not there it's very hard to pull back it's, it's, it's hard to get that back if it's not there. Well I mean if you're not grabbing the editor's attention how are you going to mm. grab a reader's attention yeah. when they take it off Absolutely. the shelf you know I think as authors you know yourself you're also an Mm. author a writer um we write what we want to write we write because we love it but in the back of our minds is always who's going to read this (laughs) you know you always have to be thinking about that as well so have you ever read manuscripts can you always tell if something's going to be a bestseller or like "Mm, how is this going to go or is it always a surprise uh no I mean I I wish that or you know the me that worked in a publishing company uh, <laughs> wished that there was some kind of magic formula that you could mm-hmm. apply. Um, there are obviously things that you look out for. Um, you know, uh, all commissioning editors, whether they work in, you know, whatever genre they work in and whether they work in a kind of more commercial or a more literary space, will spend an enormous amount of time looking at the bestseller charts and analysing what is working, why, you know, not just what types of books are working, you know, what subjects, what genres, but like, how are they published? What do the covers look like? How are they marketed? What What is it that's making these books successful? Um, so anytime you read a submission, you're coming to it with, with all of that knowledge in place. And so, you know, the example, an example I've used, sorry, um, an example I've used quite a lot recently with uh, writers I've been working with is there's been a big trend um, over the last couple of years for books about Greek mythology. So yeah. Sort of feminist retelling. Madeline of, Miller. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, you know, we've had Ariadne, we've had Pandora, you know, they're just sort of endless. Um, and so if you were a commissioning editor in a sort of on a commercial women's fiction list, 
probably at some point over the last few years, you've been thinking, if you didn't already have a Greek myth book, you've probably been thinking, should I? Should yeah. I? You know, if one crosses my desk, should I? Is there still room for another one? You know, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so say you were looking, say you decided, yeah, I think there is still mileage here. One lands on your desk. It's really well written. In fact, you think it's better than some of the other ones that you've read. You know, everything about it seems to suggest that this is going to be, it's got bestseller written all over it. Um, you know, it fits in with a with an established trend. It's well written. The author's great, well connected. You know, ev everything is lining up and you acquire it and you, you know, put everything into it and you come up with a beautiful cover and, you know, this amazing marketing and publicity campaign and you publish it and you know nothing <laughs> and that happens. yeah and that can happen all the time um and it's because it's because you're relying on so many tiny tiny factors all lining up um and perhaps you misjudged whether there was an appetite for another greek mythology book perhaps there was just something off with the timing perhaps you know, there was one bad review that just, you know, then had a sort of snowball effect. Perhaps you, you know, something was marginally off with the cover. And there's so many little things that can, you know, affect how a book performs that are just unpredictable. Um, yeah. And it can be really heartbreaking for everybody involved, you know, for the author, but also for the whole team that have worked on it, because you sit and you look and you're like, we did everything right, yeah. you know, and, and it's, and it's very hard then to uh, to unpick what you know what constantly tells we should learn from our mistakes, mm. and you know you look at things like that and you think, but I I can't see a mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, especially because so, some books can just be so well written and fantastic, mm. and you can really believe in a book, but just yeah. the market at that moment just doesn't seem to yeah. want it. Um, yeah, absolutely, and it's very it's a very strange thing about publishing that you know I always think I'd be interested to go into like you know film production company or the music business and see how they because you know those are other creative industries that rely on public taste mm -hmm. and it seems to me that they are much more sort of data driven than publishing is mm -hmm. in lots of ways you know they do a lot more you know obviously in in movies they do film uh, screen testing and, and whatnot and that's mm -hmm you know, not something that, I mean, some publishers do focus groups and stuff, and, that, and, I, and I don't mean to suggest that there isn't a lot of analysis and data that goes mm -hmm. in now to modern publishing, because there is, but there is still a lot of um, chance and risk and, um, you know, licking your finger and holding it up to the wind <laughs> and hoping for the best. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a funny old business, um, because then, you know, the flip side of that is that books that you you love and that you really hope you know have hoped for the best for but maybe for whatever reason you didn't really anticipate that they, they were going to do particularly well because maybe they were about a sort of slightly odd subject or mm -hmm. you know suddenly become international bestsellers I mean that never happens to me but it does happen <laughs> <laughs> I think there's also you know in this day and age you have book talk you have mm. bookstagram you have all of these people reading books and being extremely vocal about them yeah. you know, in videos that are going viral. You know, sometimes mm. it can only take one person ranting about how amazing this book is for other people to read it to then do the same videos and it can snowball and snowball and all of a mm. sudden 
you've got books that were published 20 years ago that are now yeah. on the bestseller charts because- yeah it's extraordinary yeah yeah I mean book talk is I mean that is definitely something that's kind of taken off since I left publishing and and it's one of the rare times when I sort of wish that I could be back in the room and hearing what people in publishing were sort of talk, saying about it um because really the one thing that that you know publishers have always been trying to capture and manipulate is word of mouth because Mm -hmm. that is the one thing that will make or break a book if you can get good word of mouth then you're golden um and I would say that prior to book talk you have always really relied on you know maybe book groups um you know if we would sometimes talk about like this is a real it's a classic book group reading reading group book because what you're hoping is that a group of mostly women let's be honest will you know sit over a glass of wine read a book love it tell their friends their book you know and and it's a a snowball effect um but how you can't engineer that you're just hoping that that will happen um and I've seen you know over the years you know I, I I worked in publishing over kind of the boom of of social media and watched publishers try to often quite slowly <laughs> try to understand what was going on and then frantically race to keep up um, and I've watched publishers try to insert themselves into those spaces in order to try and join in the conversations manipulate the conversations and it's never really worked and also you know YouTube uh, bookstagram Twitter Facebook have never even though there have always been communities of readers there they've never really driven sales it's it's been more about fans talking to themselves mm-hmm. uh even even bookstagram really you know i i can't really think i'm i'm sure there are examples but i can't really think of any examples of of bookstagram propelling a book up the charts i feel like bookstagram's um, very aesthetically driven yeah. you know it's yeah. very like a, a reader vibe rather than like yeah. talking about books whereas like I'm a fantasy author so mm-hmm. I'm deep on fantasy book talk so I'm sure yeah the amount of edits that mm. come out like it's all most of the time it's the characters of the books mm. and you'll put them in imaginary situations and people are talking about these characters mm. and what they would do it's almost like mm. it's almost like book talk allows people to make video fan fiction yeah yeah almost. well I would say actually the only other sort of platform that I think has had that potential but has been much more much less mainstream I suppose is Tumblr I think Tumblr really yeah. mm-hmm. in its heyday I, I, I my sense is that Tumblr isn't so much a thing anymore although I'm far too old to know these things <laughs> um but I think in Tumblr there were like really keen communities of yeah. and obviously you could post fan fiction on there and fan art and stuff and I think particularly in YA and uh, fantasy there there was a lot of um, there was the potential for sales to be driven from from Tumblr although you know no publisher I ever (laughs) don't know any publisher who's actually ventured onto Tumblr whereas I suspect a lot of them are now um, on TikTok. Oh if they're not sitting up and taking notices of BookTok to their own detriment because it has a life of its own. Yeah yeah well I remember um you know, I, I suppose one of the kind of the major trends of my time in publishing was uh, was YouTube and the rise of the YouTuber. And this is a slightly different thing because it's, you know, content creators as opposed to sort of fans talking about mm-hmm. books. But um, 
you know, I, I, because of the kind of nonfiction I published, I was, you know, very much part of the scene that was looking at YouTubers and, and offering them book deals, basically. And um, that I remember very clearly sort of standing in, sitting in, in various meetings, and this would have been like 2014, 2015, and explaining what YouTube was to people. <laughs> Um, and why and someone it, would want to buy a YouTuber's book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, no, no I, I doubt any of my former colleagues are listening to this, but, you know, no, no disrespect to any of them. But, um, and, and, and to be honest, I had had to have a very quick crash course in, like, who's only so close. Um, yeah. But, but I think publishing has come a long way since, since then in terms of, of realising the power of those fan bases that exist on yeah. those platforms. And I think BookTok has been the speed with which that has come to be an, a, a vital part of the book selling cycle. Um, and the fact that you now go into Waterstones and there are, you know, dedicated tables yep. to BookTok success. Mm -hmm. is just I mean, even I'll walk in, I walk into a bookstore and I'll look at the BookTok section and just glance and be like, I'm on a different part of BookTok to whoever has built this table. Yeah. Because it's I'm not seeing, that's really, yeah, um, I'm like, I'm not seeing Den of Vipers on this table. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not seeing any of that, probably for a reason. But you know, you're seeing, I mean, a very good example of the power of BookTok very recently has been the Lightlark book. Yes, um, yeah coming out and also the power that people posting videos have because the marketing team and even the author herself did an incredible job of marketing that book using mm. BookTok mm -hmm. and when all of the copies went out there was a big conversation about oh have we been misled about what this book is about because a lot mm. of TikTok is taking viral trends and adapting them so they did that very well but mm it was kind of blurring the lines between what exactly is this book about because there was a lot mm. of if you like this you'll like this and this is also in it but this is also in it mm. and to an extent everything that the author had said was in it is in it but maybe not to the extent that people were hoping for <laughs> right so I mean it worked everyone's talking about it it's on everyone's yeah. for and you she page. got a big she got a big book deal didn't she she got a big book deal. She also already got the movie rights sold, I think. Mm. Um, and a lot of people don't understand this, but a lot of the time film companies will be on the lookout, a similar way that, for instance, you're trolling YouTube mm. looking for people mm. to mm -hmm. who might sell good books. Film mm. industries are doing the exact same thing. They're looking for yeah. authors that are writing books that might make good movies. So yeah. whether that movie might never get filmed, they're still searching for the rights. So yeah. Yeah, yeah as and they, they paid her for the rights whether they make the movie or not so yeah yeah exactly so yeah if you're not on a book talk or using that to market then <laughs> uh start yes absolutely absolutely so knowing your market and marketing your book is a massive mm -hmm. part of this industry regardless of how you publish mm -hmm. but I think nowadays a lot of especially indie authors are talking about the benefits of being in indie publishing because you need to do just the almost the same amount of marketing regardless of whether you're you're publishing with a traditional publishing house so for someone who now you know you work freelance now but have worked with um, a publishing house in the past what's your view on that yeah it's interesting and I would say my view on that is developing ongoing um, <laughs> I think Inevitably, having worked for a traditional publisher for a long time, I 
have been very wedded to that as not necessarily the only way of doing it, but probably I will I will probably say that I thought it was the better way of doing it um, mm. because that's what I had been you know tra- trained in and and indoctrinated in if you want to. Um, and I still believe that I I still very much believe in traditional publishing I think um, the value that um, a traditional publisher can bring to a book is immeasurable you know Um, you know for all that I've been sort of saying how uh, difficult it is to to manufacture a bestseller you know the experience of, um, of being traditionally published of having that sort of team of experts around you Mm. from the beginning um people who really know what they're doing and have been you know and and have that knowledge of the market and and can bring all of that to bear on on a manuscript um is in theory when everything lines up and goes well um you know is is invaluable and can when it when it does work it has the power to bring a book to an enormous number of people Mm. you know um and to and to um put the author into some you know incredible positions in terms of you know opportunities to to speak directly to their um to their readers to to go to festivals to travel to you know have their book published in multiple different languages um so you know, I think that, that there will always be a place for traditional publishing. But, you know, since I've left publishing, I, you know, I, my, my view on, on indie publishing has definitely changed. Um, I do a lot of work now with writers who um, perhaps, you know, sometimes haven't decided whether they want, which route they want to go down or some who are very set from the beginning that, that the only route that they're really interested in is self-publishing. Um, and you know, I, I I can see I have much better sense now of the value of that and how you know keeping control of of um, of your work in that way can be really important to lots of writers. Um, you know, having the ability to put together your own team, for example. So picking the freelance editor you want to work with, picking the designer that you want to work with, having that sense of um, of creative control is very um, enticing to a lot of people, I think. Um, and then having, you know, just the, having the sort of the instant hit, I suppose, of being able to make your book available on on a platform like Amazon. Um, other publishing platforms are available, um, and 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 being able to to connect directly with readers, I think, is 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 another thing that you know often. I suppose in traditional publishing there can be that sense that the the writer ends up quite separate from mm. the people that they're writing for because of all of the kind of layers in between. Whereas I think with um, something that a lot of self-published writers do very well is build direct relationships with their readers and develop that audience and have that sense of community. I think between yeah. um, writer and reader, which a, it's just a lovely thing in and of itself, but also really helps with, as you were saying, the kind of marketing because you have this then, you know, ready-made, you know, whether it's a mailing list, whether it's a, a TikTok subscribers. Is that what you have on TikTok? I don't followers. know. Followers. 
oh god um <laughs> what you know whatever platform you're on you know yeah you have you have people who are engaged with your work and who are you know yeah. ready and primed to hear about whatever you're working on next so yeah I think there are, there are there are many benefits and I can totally see why some there are many writers who just you know it's not a second choice I think that's what I always I always felt like it was okay you've tried traditional publishing and it didn't work out for you so so now you're going to do self-publishing um and that's you know not not how I see it at all now I really like that you said um like your view has changed on the indie mm. versus traditional kind of debate mm. because I was even the same you know when I first wanted to get my book out there I was like oh I need to get an agent I need to get an editor I'm mm -hmm. gonna I'm gonna get one of the big five publishing houses mm. you know spending hours and hours over submissions mm. and then yeah when that didn't work out you know it, it was a long story of having contact mm. with some agents getting mm. dropped deciding stuff and that's when I noticed that the community that I had on socials, they wanted that book to come out. Mm. And I was like, even if it works out with traditional publishing, I could be waiting years to get a book deal and then waiting mm. to get it published. So that's what spurred me on personally mm. to going the indie route and getting my book out there. And then once I did one, I was like, I'm going to do the rest like this. And, yeah, you know, having that sense of control is great because your work is completely yours and mm. you get to make all of the final decisions mm. and you know you get to have final say on all of the creative mm. um things that go into it is it difficult because you need to do it all yourself yes <laughs> but you know I think a lot of people when they're focusing on the indie versus traditional debate focus on money mm. um and I think this is where a lot of people go wrong because yeah, if you have an indie book and it sells really well, you're going to make a lot of money because mm. you don't need to pay your editor and your publishing mm. house and your agent. But if your book doesn't sell well, you're not going to make anything. And then there's a bigger debate on, well, how much do people actually make if they mm. do publish traditionally? And that's where the debate for me, I think, gets very interesting because mm. I think a lot of people see authors' success stories, you know, the big ones, J.K. Rowling, you know, <laughs> Stephen King, you know, all mm. of the household names that we know as authors making millions isn't necessarily the story for the everyday author. No, by no means. <laughs> no. Um, I think something that I, you know, I, I do a lot more now kind of I run workshops and, and do a lot more kind of working with writers talking about the business of publishing and try, you know, trying to help them on their way, whichever path they, they want to go on. And, and something that I sort of am very aware of is, is trying to sort of do some expectation management around, mm. uh, around not just around the financial side of things, but around the process as a whole, because so many you know, I think a lot of writers are very focused on getting an agent. Um, and that's a that can be a huge and lengthy and disappointing process in and of itself. Um, but, you know, once you get an agent, if you're lucky enough to, you know, find representation, there's then the whole, you know, second process of them submitting your work to agents and uh, to editors. Um, if you then get a book deal, um, there's then another, you know, lengthy process of editorial work and, and so on. And then your book is published and it may not 
become an international bestseller you may not win the booker prize Mm -hmm. chances are you won't yeah um so it's a very it can be a very rewarding journey but it's a long journey and there are lots of different stages and and points uh, sort of pressure points in it um and I think it you know knowledge is power as they say and I think being as informed as possible about all of that from the beginning is really helpful in terms of just managing the just the emotion of the whole process um and sort of thinking about conversation I've had recently with a few writers about sort of thinking about what constitutes success for you Mm. Um, because so much of of publishing is certainly traditional publishing is framed around the idea of bestseller and that's what we're all aiming for Um, but that is something that only a fraction of um, I mean and also what quantifies a bestseller you know that's a whole other um, whole other question but you know that's something that only a fraction of authors really ever achieve um so I think it's really important to think about why you're writing what you're writing and what success will look yeah. like for you is it is it just the fact that your book is going to be out there in the world available in Waterstones or wherever um because that's a huge achievement even if you don't then sell you know a yeah. single copy afterwards um is it becoming financially um you know be, being able to 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 um manage financially off your writing Mm -hmm. that's a huge achievement yeah um you know what does it what does it look like for you is it getting really lovely uh reader reviews on amazon you know that might be another way to measure your success um so i always really encourage writers to try and think about that and to try and sort of reframe maybe what what success is going to look like for for them because chances are it's not going to be becoming the next stephen king yeah, I love that though, like reframing what mm. success means to mm. you. I think that's incredibly important, especially when you work in such a creative industry, you know, because mm. there's some books that I've read that I loved and would give a five-star review. And I know someone mm. else who didn't even finish the book because they're yeah. like, I, I don't like it. So it's such yeah. a subjective art mm. that mm. I personally don't think that you can quantify success mm in any other way other than you finishing a book that you love if you're an author and you've written a book that you're happy with and you loved and it's a story you wanted to tell then you're a success absolutely yeah no I completely I completely agree um and you know just just having written a book is a huge achievement as you say um having a book published whether that's traditionally or, or or independently is a huge achievement having people read your book and give you nice feedback is a huge achievement. Um, and so I think it's, it's helpful to try and, as I say, reframe some of those ideas about what success looks like. Um, and to think, you know, realistically about the finances, because most writers have supplementary income of some kind, whether mm-hmm. that is that they are, you know, they have a full-time job. Lots of writers continue working at whatever their kind of day job was well into their career um whether that's doing journalism on the side you know paid speaking engagements lots of writers now are you know using things like substack or whatever to try and bring in more um more income because very few people can manage off the back of advances and royalties just Mm -hmm. because they're unless you are you know um unless you are incredibly lucky and 
you know, are one of those debut authors who secures a six-figure advance, which is rare, or you are an established brand author who can rely on a regular yearly advance, then mm-hmm. you're, you are unlikely to be making enough money to support yourself and your family. Um, so, you know, that sounds very depressing, I think, but I think, it, like I said, it's, it's, it's helpful to have, to be realistic about those things and to plan accordingly. Absolutely. So if there's anyone listening to this who potentially is thinking about writing a book or getting into editing or just wants Mm. a little bit more information, where could they find you to sign up for one of your workshops or anything like that? Yeah. So um, I have a website, uh, hannahbaltimore.com. You can find me there. There's information about all the work that I do. There's also my blog. I have a newsletter, which I send more or less monthly. Um, which is largely focused on kind of writing and um, creativity. So lots of resources that I share in there. Um, So I would love for anybody to sign up there. Um, Workshops I do, uh, some are just in person only. So only available, I'm afraid, if you can travel to Sheffield. Um, But there are also online uh, offerings from time to time too. Um, I work with a a group in Sheffield called the Writers' Workshop. Um, So there's a group of us who run various different uh, workshops and sessions for writers at all different stages of their career and lots of those are online um, so that's writersworkshop.co.uk perfect well all of the links will be in the description box below but Hannah thank you so much for taking the time to sit Absolute down and chat pleasure. with us it was lovely to hear from you thank you thank you for having me Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe. Sharing on social media is always a bonus, and I will catch you guys next week.